Have you ever wondered, what do these people know that I don't know? How do I do it? How do I find my purpose, my passions? What if you could sit down with some of the wisest experts, everyday leaders, and inspirational people who could answer your deepest questions? That is what we do here on the Inspirational Living Podcast. We invite you to join us as we hold conversations, share wisdom, tips, and tools to inspire you, ignite your passions and vision for your life, to awaken your sense of purpose and hope, and leave you inspired to design your best life. Join me, your host, psychologist Dr. Sean Horn, as we take you on an inspirational, motivational, and educational journey so you can inspire by living an inspired life. Welcome back to another episode of Inspired Living, the podcast dedicated to delving into the depths of emotional healing and personal growth. I'm Dr. Sean Horn, your host, a licensed clinical psychologist and also known as the shame-busting psychologist. Today, we're tackling a thought-provoking subject, binge thinking. If you've ever felt trapped in a cycle of relentless overthinking, then this episode is your guide. We'll delve into the roots of binge thinking, its emotional impact, and most importantly, equip you with strategies to break free and achieve emotional clarity. So let's dive in. Overthinking is paralyzing. It's robbing us of life's joys and moments. It sweeps us out of the moment and takes us onto a journey into the world of negative stories and predictions, otherwise what I call stinking thinking. One of my favorite quotes is that we suffer from a thousand tragedies of which only occur in our imagination. I mean, think about it. How many arguments have you had with your spouse, with your friend, or negative situation were you in, but only in your mind. You didn't actually live it out. I can think of so many times that I was driving home anticipating some conflict with my husband and I'm playing out the whole argument in my head. And then I come home and he's like, how are you? And I'm already grumpy at him. And because of that, we start having an argument, but not because of what I imagined playing out in my mind. So we really do work ourselves up and suffer from these imagined scenarios. And the problem is, is that it causes us to live out in two different realms, two different worlds, the real one and the imagined one. And to make it worse, the brain will send the chemical messengers appropriate to the scenario we imagined. So literally the brain doesn't always know the difference between real and imagined. And when you imagine that negative scenario or traumatic event, you're living it. You're living it out physiologically in your body. Your body is sending out all of those chemicals that would match that imagined reality. So we really want to get on top of our overthinking, our binge thinking and gain some control over it so we can prevent unnecessary suffering that comes with our overthinking. So what is binge thinking? What is overthinking? Binge thinking is like binge watching or binge eating. It's an excessive and uncontrollable pattern of overthinking or engaging in repetitive and persistent thoughts that are often negative or worrisome in nature and are really, really difficult to control or to stop. It is this continual loop of negative, self-critical or anxious thoughts about what you've done wrong, about what someone else has done wrong, what's wrong with the world and so forth. 
and it just seems like it's impossible to escape. I was actually inspired to to do this episode when I read a, a part or a passage from a book called The Emotional Sobriety 2, The Next Frontier, a publication from a from the Alcoholics Anonymous publication, The Grapevine. And I want to read it to you. It's called Binge Thinker. And here's what it says. Before I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. I was powerless over unhappiness and my life had become unmanageable. I turned to alcohol in my late 40s as the best self-help option I could find. Often, my unhappiness seemed to melt as I drank, but drinking became an even more elusive and flawed solution to my unhappiness. It began to create unhappiness of its own. My overall unhappiness was eventually much greater than what I had evaded and yet not solved at the beginning of my alcoholism. So now what? Maybe the best way to feel was to be happy, but how was that possible? Long before I was a binge drinker, I was a binge thinker. I tended to think incessantly as if this were an essential part of staying alive. My mind either had no off switch or if it did, I had no idea where it was. In this constant banter, I could I could find all sorts of resentments to chew on, grudges to hold, victimizations to ponder, and catastrophes to protest. Life was unfair. People were harbingers of much injustice and unkindness, and I was justifiably withholding my seal of approval by not accepting what already was. I created thoughts. I can do so from default behaviors, what I have come to otherwise recognize as character defects. Or I can create thoughts within the awareness of having choices. Awareness for me is realizing that I am not my thoughts. Rather, I observe my thoughts and their creation and content. If I need not be run by my conditioned default thinking, then have I discovered the choice of observing and creating constructive thinking? Once I learned to meditate As encouraged in step 11, I was able to find the off switch to my thinking when that thinking is neither needed nor useful to me. I can use thought rather than have my thinking use me. Awareness, I believe, is the most accessible door to what has been referred to as spirituality throughout my life and in AA. Recognize this, uh, this method struggle with overthinking. I think this writer details how he was so powerless over his emotions. This idea of being powerless over emotions is a central concept to emotional sobriety that I want to share with you and and help you understand emotional sobriety a little bit more. It This uh, feeling out of control with his emotions led him to destructive coping mechanisms. In his case, it was binge drinking. So the goal of emotional sobriety, which is a concept that comes out of AA, you hear a lot about it when you uh, listen to adult children of alcoholics, if you go to ACA meetings, or any 12-step programs, they refer to emotional sobriety. And what they talk about is that you put the plug in the jug, not to just sober up with whatever substance you're using, but so that you can then really begin the journey of emotional sobriety. 
So that's the goal. That's the aim. That's the recovery is to enhance and improve and strengthen your emotional sobriety. So I'm going to be talking about this uh, in the next few episodes I have um, prepared for you. I'm very excited about this concept. I believe that we can heal shame with emotional sobriety. And so that's what I want to talk about. So the goal of emotional sobriety is to achieve a state of emotional well-being, balance, and resilience that allows individuals to navigate life's challenges with clarity, mindfulness, and self-awareness. Emotional sobriety is often associated with personal growth, inner peace, and the ability to handle emotions and experiences in a healthy and constructive manner. It goes beyond merely abstaining from harmful substances or behaviors. It involves developing a deep understanding of one's emotions, thoughts, and reactions, and learning to respond to them in ways that promote overall mental and emotional health. Now, does that not sound good? Does that not sound what we all want, this emotional freedom? So it's not saying to not experience emotions. This is where the word sobriety can get people a little tripped up, but it's really about being able to experience all emotions and all of life's events in a way where we can stay grounded and take effective action. It is also referred to as emotional maturity because as we develop our emotional health and our emotional resilience, we become more emotionally mature And when we're more emotionally mature, we're able to be more responsive than reactive, which comes with emotional immaturity. So let's talk about the emotion, the opposite of emotional sobriety. And that is called emotional turmoil, or they often refer to it as emotional immaturity. So this refers to a state of intense emotional distress where individuals may struggle to manage their emotions effectively leading to impulsive reactions, heightened stress, and difficulty in maintaining emotional balance. It involves feeling overwhelmed by emotions, being reactive without much thought, and having a hard time coping with ups and downs of life. We also talk a lot about uh, when people are in an emotionally immature state, that they are what they call seeking top-down approval. So you're still in this child mind where your inner world is completely dependent on outside people and circumstances. So we go through life demanding that the world does it right for us to be all right. And the problem is that doesn't work as adults. It's not going to be right. People aren't going to do it right. So we have to find a way to be all right, even when the outside is not right. And that's the goal of emotional sobriety. So going back to this writing, this author explains how he attempted to solve his problem of overthinking with his coping mechanism, which was over drinking. Now, in this case, the coping mechanism served to help him numb his emotion, numb his pain and distress. It is a temporary escape, but it is a solution that creates a bigger problem in the long run. So many of our unhealthy coping skills function to help us numb some sort of emotional distress or to distract us from distress. And substance use is not the only method that we will use. So I want to go over a list with you of different methods that people will use to numb and distract. 
So I've got 14 here for you. So the first one is overeating or binge eating. This is where we distract with those yummy things. <laughs> it's two excessive screen time. You know, you just can't put that phone down, can't stop scrolling, can't stop watching uh, a show or play that game or whatever you're doing on that screen. Retail therapy, overspending, especially on things you don't need, but it's giving you some relief. Compulsive exercise. Now, this is those folks that are just always at the gym, always working out, and it's it's compulsive and it's too much. So again, we're not talking about just minor things. We're talking about any too much behavior that has specifically the function to numb and to distract. So five, isolation. This is where people will withdraw to evade, uh, sorry, they'll withdraw to evade emotional confrontation or any sort of triggers in the outside environment. Workaholism, overworking as an escape leading, and this can lead to burnout. Seven, constant busyness, staying occupied to dodge emotional introspection. See this a lot with parenting these days where parenting is really stressful, right? Taking care of kids and it brings up so much stuff to us. If anything's going to trigger us, it's our families and our kids. And so sometimes you'll see families just be so booked with activity that they don't have to be present. They're just too busy to be. And that is the function of it. So let's continue. Eight, self-harm. This is where you transition emotional pain to physical pain. Nine, sexual escapism, where you use impulsive sexual encounters to flee emotions. 10, gambling, get the thrill from that emotional discomfort. 11, excessive sleep, oversleeping to, as an avoidance strategy. Perfectionism, masking inadequacy fears with perfection. Escapism, reading or, or fantasy. This is where you're immersing yourself in a fiction to elude reality. You also see this with a lot of the online playing that some of our folks are doing these days. They're escaping into these false realities. 14, emotional suppression this is where you're avoiding emotions, hoping they will just go away, but they don't. The issues end up being in the tissues and they just don't go away like that. And I would add one more to this, which is people pleasing, people pleasing where we're seeking that external approval and validation. And so sometimes when people will suppress, they'll resort to people pleasing to get that artificial um, feedback that they are okay and, and get positive feedback when they're distressed. Problem with that is it's artificial and it comes with these hidden demands, hidden demands that people will appreciate you that they will value you, that they will like you, want you, be with you and so forth. And so when they don't give you that feedback, then we will become angry because they didn't do their job. Our job was to make them happy. Their job was to make us happy. And that is a problem. So when we do kind things for other people, we want to do it without the expectation for something in return. And I'll talk more about that when I do a deeper dive into emotional sobriety. So while these strategies to numb and distract are temporary relieving, they often cause bigger problems. They perpetuate emotional, behavioral, and relational problems. 
So let's look at some of the problems that they cause. I have a list of 11 here. So one, impulsivity. So we make hasty decisions or reacting impulsively without considering the consequences due to intense emotional reactions. Mood swings, experiencing frequent and drastic shifts in mood, often without apparent triggers. Three, emotional reactivity, reacting strongly and quickly to external events or triggers, often with anger, sadness, or frustration. Four, lack of emotional regulation, so struggling to manage and regulate emotions leading to prolonged periods of emotional distress. Our nervous system will just stay dysregulated. Five, conflict in relationships, difficulty maintaining healthy relationships due to unpredictable emotional responses and communication challenges. Six, escalating negative thought patterns, falling into negative thought cycles, catastrophizing and excessive rumination. So essentially it's, it's exasperating pro the problem we initially had. It's just making it grow and get bigger. Seven, using destructive coping mechanisms. So we'll turn to harmful behaviors or substances as a way to escape or numb intense emotions. Eight, difficulty with mindfulness, finding it challenging to stay present in the moment and observe thoughts and emotions without judgment. If your body is dysregulated, your nervous system's dysregulated, you are not going to be able to be present easily. You're going to have to do it very intentionally because the brain is prioritizing the the fight and flee state is saying there's danger here. So we need to get charged up to look for the threat, to look for the danger and have our body fueled to take the immediate action. So the parts of our brain that we use for critical thinking, good judgment, problem solving, that is not being fired up. It's our lizard brain that's fired up in that moment. So a lot of times people will say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't think, I can't focus. I don't have good short-term memory. It's not because you're getting dementia or something like that, but it's because your brain is prioritizing different areas of function. And that's just one of the symptoms of anxiety and depression is that you have difficulties with thinking, concentrating, memory, things like that. Number nine, self-doubt. You begin feeling unsure about oneself and one's ability to navigate emotions and life challenges. 10, unresolved trauma. You experience past traumas or unresolved emotional wounds that contribute to ongoing emotional turmoil. So when you are in a negative state or emotional dysregulation, your brain is going to open the pathways of every life event or situation where you felt the same way and you're going to have recall memory. So that's called state dependent memory. Whatever mood you're in, you're going to have memories of other events where you had the same mood. And that's why people get flooded with all these negative thoughts. It's very hard for them to shift, but that's the brain is going down that neural pathway that is related to that emotion. And it's just, it's like the price is right. Which door are we opening? If you open the negative thought door, you have all the negative things that are attached to it. You open the positive thought door, you have positive things. So it's like if you're at a, at some event that is sad or negative, and someone comes up to you and says, tell me your favorite joke. You're not likely going to be able to recall anything funny, but let's say you're at the comedy store and you're listening to a comic and everyone's laughing and you're laughing. And all of a sudden you remember all these jokes that is state dependent memory. It's just kind of how it works. 
So the next one we have is lack of authenticity. So we struggle to express genuine emotions and instead masking them with defensive or socially acceptable responses. So emotional, emotional turmoil negatively affects our mental and physical health, our relationships, and our overall well-being. Unlike emotional sobriety, which aims to achieve our balance, our, my, our mindful emotional well-being, emotional turmoil is characterized by inability to effectively manage and respond to emotions, and that results in distress and instability. So as a rule of thumb, we want to find solutions that don't create bigger problems. But if your tool bag only has a hammer in it, then that's what you're going to use, my friend. So we need to add more tools to your toolbox so you have other choices for solutions. If your only choice is your unhealthy coping skill, then that's what you're going to default to. So that's what the healing journey is is building new coping skills, new ways of doing things, practicing them over and over until you master them and you begin to enhance and improve your life and improve the way you do things. So let's look at some factors that contribute to binge thinking. Shame. You know, that's my game, right? We talk about shame. (laughs) So at the core of binge thinking often lies shame and shame's children, what becomes birthed out of shame is perfectionism and that lovely inner critic, right? So we get that harsh inner critic and we're compelled towards perfectionism, perfectionism often to compensate and to try to prevent having any shame or negative experience or thoughts and so forth. So shame compels us to set unrealistically high standards, high expectations for ourselves and others. And it motivates us to have this constant self-evaluation. And this sets the stage for rumination and self-doubt. There is a condition called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which I want to talk about in depth with you in the future. But this is a heightened sensitivity towards criticism and towards negative feedback. I think it's this really fancy term to talk about shame trauma. And what this does is it makes somebody so hypervigilant over everything they say, everything they did, how people responded to them, that they will at night sit in bed and ruminate over every conversation, every interaction, and become very critical about what they said, what they did, and so forth. And it's just absolutely paralyzing. So this will contribute to binge thinking. The other thing that will contribute is fear of the unknown, being in the ambiguous zone. We don't like that. Our nervous system does not like the unknown. We don't like things we can't predict and we can't control. So if we are in a situation where we don't know the outcome, we don't know what's going to happen, our brain, if we feel threatened, our brain is going to ruminate over that to try to gain a sense of control, to try to gain a sense that it can change something it can't change and protect something that they don't even know is going to happen yet. So we see this preoccupation. You definitely saw it during COVID 
people trying to anticipate what was going to happen and make predictions as if it was fact. And uh, we really created a world of our own in that land of stinking thinking. The next thing is past traumas and regrets. So past traumas is if somebody has PTSD or just negative traumatic events, that will predispose us to overthink. If we have regrets, regrets can be tainted by shame. We will ruminate over that. Our brain does not like to be powerless and it doesn't like to do something that would cause it to be endangered in social context. So what it will do is it will ruminate over those things and attempt to gain control and power over the past as if it can change it. So it plays a trick on us. It's a, it deceives us. Overthinking deceives us. It gives us a false sense, an illusion of power, an illusion of control and of knowing when we don't have any of those things, but our brain wants to have those things. So our brain's trying to help us survive. It's ha- trying to help us stay on top and be in the best case scenario, but it doesn't, it's not always directing its efforts in an effect in the most effective way. And that's what we need to do in healing overthinking is really help direct our thoughts towards effective thinking versus ineffective thinking. But before I go into that, I also want to say that when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to trauma, it is physiological first, psychological second. We must understand that. This is why when you try to think different, it doesn't change what your body does. That's because when it comes to those conditions, we have to target the body first. We have to regulate that nervous system. So if you have a mental health condition like anxiety, trauma, a trauma condition or depression or bipolar disorder, or if you're not sleeping, if you're not eating well, if you're not exercising, you're under a lot of stress, you're in a threatening situation, your body's response is going to fire up that overthinking. So sometimes we have to decrease the, we can decrease the overthinking by down-regulating our nervous system and help the body to calm. So it calms the mind. So that is also a contributing factor. So finally, binge thinking predisposes us to compare ourselves to others, to think of the worst case scenario, and it fosters further shame and anxiety. It is deceptive, causing us to place meaning onto everything as we overanalyze and overthink situations, events, and everyday occurrences. Again, our brain does not like the unknown. So to help mediate that, we will create stories to fill the gaps. So if I don't know why you're not calling me back, my brain will come up with a story on why you're not calling me back. If I don't know why I didn't get that job, my brain will come up with a story about why I did not get that job. But it is theory. It is a hypothesis. It is not fact. And we must keep that in mind when we are dealing with overthinking. We must take our thoughts captive and not believe everything we think. So because 
shame, because overthinking is associated with shame and shame trauma, its nature is to be hypervigilant in effort to prevent these things from happening again. So we end up getting a heightened sensitivity to details and a deep desire to understand the underlying significance behind everything we encounter. It will make things bigger and it will overemphasize the significance of certain experiences or interactions, and that will lead to unnecessary suffering. So let's get to the good stuff. How do we overcome binge thinking? So good news, we can get liberation from binge thinking. And I want to talk about the strategies to overcome binge thinking from overthinking. First, I want to talk about mindfulness techniques. So mindfulness helps us to stay present and to redirect our focus away from repetitive thoughts. In the reading that I did earlier, the writer stated that his turning point came when he realized that he creates thoughts and has a choice in how he responds to those thoughts. He can either respond through default behaviors or He can respond by consciously generating constructive thoughts. So to begin consciously generating constructive thoughts, he began practicing mindfulness and mindfulness helped him to realize a thought was not a truth. Rather, a thought was just a thought. We say this in therapy. We say feelings are not facts and thoughts are not truths. They are information that comes to us to inform us and to get us to attend to something. But we must remember that just because I think something, it doesn't mean it's truth. And just because I feel something, it doesn't mean it's fact. So he began to practice this by observing the thoughts that came through the gates of his mind and to identify those thoughts, where they came from and what the content was. So let's look at that as an example of, I like to use the conveyor belt. You might've heard me say this before. Take a timeline from birth till now, every thought you've ever had, every feeling you've ever experienced, situation you've ever been in is on that belt. And you wrap it around and connect it or on that line, you wrap it around, connect it. And this is your conveyor belt. And it comes up to the gates of your mind. So think you're at the airport, you're sitting there waiting for your luggage, right? And every suitcase is a thought and you're standing there and out it comes And you're observing that this thought is coming to you. Now, we want to label those thoughts. We want to notice them and label them. So one suitcase, you can say, you could put mom on it. Another one, you could put insecurity on it. Another one, you can put self-doubt. Another one, anxiety, something like this. And when it comes, you will notice it and say, thoughts about mom are coming to me right now. Anxiety is talking to me right now. Self-doubt is talking to me right now. And you can state what it's saying to you. Now, notice the difference between, let's say I have a suitcase that says, uh, no one likes me. So notice the difference between me saying, oh, no one likes me versus I just have the thought, no one likes me. It just gives you a little separation from the experience of that thought. 
And that's what we want to do. I say you can't see the painting when you're inside the painting. You have to step out to be able to see it. And by observing and describing what thoughts are coming into your mind, it allows us to step out and to be more conscious and more intentional. Now, our task is not to resist it. Our task is not to cling to it. So resisting is going, why is this coming to me? I hate it's here. What is should have, could have, have to, ought to, I hate, so forth. That's us fighting the fact that that thought has come to us. We don't want to cling to it, which is when we grab hold of it and we entertain it. We ruminate with it. We agree with it. We go through the memory bank with it. And that way it becomes attached to us. Instead, you see it, you describe it, and you let it continue going on the conveyor belt. So most airports, when the suitcase goes, it goes behind a wall or it goes into the hole in the floor or whatever, and then out comes more suitcases. So this is where you can use the power of, or the concept of a higher power that you're turning it back over to your higher power. So you say, I see anxieties here. Anxiety is saying it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. I've noticed it saying that to me and I'm letting it keep moving back to you, God. And then you redirect your attention back to the here and now that's mindfulness you put all your attention into the present moment. If you're washing dishes, you're washing dishes. If you're walking, you're walking and you notice your everything about it, like your sensations. If you're walking, you're like step, step, you're describing the steps. You're noticing what you see, what you feel, what you hear. And as the suitcases come around, the thoughts come around, you just let them come and you let them go. You come, you observe them and you redirect. So you're not controlling what you see but you're controlling where you put your attention. This is the practice of mindfulness. This is what I teach in mindfulness skills. And I have a great detail about how to do that step-by-step. If you want to learn more about that, please sign up on my website. And when that course launches, then, you know, you can take it and it will be great and very helpful. It's one of my favorite tools and skills that I teach and I use on a daily basis. So the writer had began to experience the positive outcome of practicing this mindfulness and realizing that thoughts are not truths and so forth, so forth. (laughs) So he stated that meditation allowed him to find the off switch to unnecessary and unhelpful thinking. Perhaps in my analogy, I would say that helped him to not take that suitcase off of the conveyor belt and attach it to him, right? He was able to just keep it at bay. So this practice enabled him to use thoughts purposefully rather than being controlled by his thoughts. He identified awareness as a crucial concept that he emphasized that is a pathway that he refers to for his spirituality in life. And that's a con- that's in the context of Alcoholics Anonymous and how they talk about spirituality. So overall, he discovered that the choice of observing and creating constructive thinking enabled him to stop the thoughts and to not be ruled by his default thinking. So another technique that we can use to help with overthinking is grounding techniques. Grounding techniques, there's so many out there. If you just Google them or go to YouTube or somewhere, there are all these strategies about noticing how the ground feels under your feet, noticing the couch underneath you, 
noticing how something feels, smells, looks, tastes, and so forth, where you're bringing your awareness to the here and now. There are breathing exercises that help with that as well. And many people find that that helps them to step out of the mental tornado and to get back into the present moment. Also, vagal tone exercises. Vagal tone exercises are things you do physically to downregulate your nervous system, to calm your nervous system. I have a full list of vagal tone exercises. So if you would like a copy of that, then please sign up on my email list or contact my office uh, on my website at drshawnhorn.com and we will be happy to send that to you. And uh, so you can have that and know as a menu of different things you can do to kind of hack your nervous system, which means to get to calm quickly without the reliance of thought. So often people would try to calm their body by thinking positive affirmations, things like that. But when you're that dysregulated, that's just not going to do it for you. We have to get the body to soothe itself. And bagel tone exercises are, in my opinion, one of the best tools to use to calm your body. And when you calm your body, you calm your mind. It's very helpful. We can also do cognitive restructuring. So this is where we challenge and reframe negative thought patterns. So we replace cr critical thoughts, self-critical thoughts with more realistic or compassionate ones. So for example, if you did something you regret, you made a mistake, you just acknowledge that, hey, I am human. Humans make mistakes. It was not preferred that I did that, but I'm okay. It's not the worst thing in the world you know, I'm going to be okay. And you kind of get up, you dust off, you affirm yourself, say, you know, this is a difficult journey I'm on. I'm doing the best I can and I need to do better. So that's dialectics. Dialectics is opposites occurring together. So I can be strong and weak at the same time. I can be loving and unloving at the same time. That can blow your mind, right? So essentially the dialectic about our personal growth is I'm doing the best that I can and I need to do better. And I hold compassionate for my human experience because man, this is difficult, right? It's difficult being human. So with your thought patterns, you want you can ask yourself some really helpful questions like, is this thought necessary? Is it effective? Is this thought needed? Is it my problem? Is this something I can change or control? So let's say I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, I'm so fat, right? Because a lot of people have that kind of uh, body shaming. And you know that I, I don't like diet culture and I'm not one to say those things. But a lot of people, we've all been there, right? We've all had those thoughts. So you sit there and you go, oh my gosh, I'm so fat. I'm so fat. Okay. Is this thought necessary? How is it necessary? It's not. What does it do? What can you do with it? it? It has no action to it. It's not effective. It does nothing for you. Having the thought, a critical thought about your body does not change anything. It doesn't control anything. It doesn't fix anything. It has no function. Now, if you have the thought that I want to be healthy, I want to live a healthy lifestyle, I want to be more active, then that thought might not be 
I don't know, we could argue necessary, but is it effective? Well, it will motivate you to take some healthy action, right? Now, one could say, saying I'm fat will motivate me. Well, actually not. What we now know is that what you resist persists and what you focus on is kind of what you receive. So the more you think about what you don't want, you actually end up getting more of that. But when you think of what you want, you start moving in those directions. So if you say, I don't want to go into debt, a lot of times that leads people go, well, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll just pay for this now. I'll start tomorrow. Right. But if you say, I want to build wealth, my goal is to save $1,000. Then when you go to use your credit card, you go, "Mm, I don't want to do that because I really want to meet that goal this week. Right. So your direction goes where, what you're focusing on. This is a really big key principle to change and to improving our life. You must focus on what you want, not what you don't want. So ask yourself those thoughts. If it is not your problem, then let's not think about it because it's not your problem. It's not your problem to solve. If it's not something you can change, then thinking about it is has no effectiveness to it. If it's not something you can control, then thinking about it has no effectiveness to it, has no function to it, right? So think about when COVID was going on. People were like, how long is this going to be? What's going on? How am I going to deal with it? What are... Well, were those thoughts effective? Did those thoughts change anything? Did they help you get through it? No, they just created more stress and more angst and it had absolutely no function. Now, if you needed to develop a safety plan, if you needed to develop some sort of, um, take some sort of action that would support some outcome you want, like let's say there's something politically going on and you're having a hard time and you're thinking about all the negative thoughts about that political situation, well, I can't change what everyone else is doing, but I can vote or I can send a letter to somebody who can do something that I can do. But sitting and meditating on it, meditating on the problem is taking up a lot of brain space. It's using up a lot of emotional fuel. And quite frankly, we got enough going on that we need that fuel for, right? So be intentional about where you put your energy, where you use your fuel because you need it and we need to preserve it so we don't get burned out and get more emotionally vulnerable and so forth. So hopefully those questions will help you. The writer also stated that he began to challenge his thinking with the questions, is this thought useful or needed? And when he recognized that it was ineffective or unnecessary, then he hit the off switch to that thought. So that's what we want to do. We just want to, if you notice it's not effective, then eh, I'm hitting off switch and then I'm turning my mind and I'm redirecting it to the here and now. We can also do thinking time or what we call worry appointments. So this is a strategy when you have some worry that just won't leave your mind and it's nagging at you, nagging at you, and you really can't take action today. There's nothing you can do about it, but it is a concern you might set aside a time to have a worry appointment where you say, okay, at seven o'clock tonight, I'm going to worry about this situation. And I'm going to, until that time, this thought is off limits. So when it comes to you, you say, not now, it's not your time. Thought comes to you, you say, not your time. Seven o'clock, I will talk to you. Seven o'clock, I will think about you. 
seven o'clock comes and then you shut the doors, you turn off the phone, you take out your paper and you worry to the best of your ability. Uh, Some will even have people stand, some therapists will suggest standing in front of a mirror and worry out loud, watch yourself, hear yourself, just say it all, say everything you're thinking, everything that is coming through your minds. Do not leave any rock unturned. But when your 30 minutes is up, it's up. It's over. It's off limits. Done. So set your timer, 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever you do. Time is up. Done. And you can't think about it. You can't entertain it. It's off limits until your next worry appointment. The next strategy is to engage in meaningful activities. So immerse yourself in activities that bring you joy and fulfillment. This is where we want to improve our day, improve our circumstance, watch a funny movie, a funny show, go for a walk, spend time with someone you, you love that you enjoy spending time with, do something to divert your mind from the overthinking and to boost your overall well-being. So this is different from the coping skill I talked about earlier, where people will do too many activities to escape. Here we're doing meaningful activities, things to enrich our lives and to be more present with something positive instead of the distress that our mind wants to focus on. And finally, seek professional support. If binge thinking becomes overwhelming, seek guidance of a therapist or a counselor who can provide you with personalized tools that will work for you, that will fit your circumstance. I don't know you. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know you. And if I do know you, I'm not with you and I'm not um, helping you in this moment, right? And so I can't personalize this advice to you. And as a disclaimer, this, this podcast is for educational purposes only, and it's not direct provider to client, uh, what do they say? Advice. We'll get that straight. So I don't get sued by anyone. I tell you what, it's, it's really hostile out there. Talk about overthinking. Us providers worry about that stuff all the time. It's incredible. <laughs> and especially when you're on social media and everything, there are some really mean people out there that say really scary things. So we must have that disclaimer, right? So basically all this advice you're getting from online, from YouTube, from po- podcasts, everything is educational information, but it can't possibly fit all circumstances and all people because situations are complex. Our stories are complex. And so there are people out there who could be available for you. And if it's, if you can't afford a therapist, then maybe a pastor, maybe a mentor, maybe a peer counselor or a peer support service. Maybe you can contact NAMI, National Association for Mental Illness, see what resources they know of for your community, or if there's any free resources online. Uh, But get the help, get the help that would be right for you and fit your situation. So we want to seek healthier coping strategies. We want to build that toolbox And professional help can be critical to help us with that and can help us with our emotional well-being. So in closing, binge thinking might be a common struggle, 
but it's not a battle we have to fight alone. By understanding its roots, acknowledging its effects, and employing effective strategies, we can liberate ourselves from the cycle of overthinking and move towards emotional sobriety, emotional freedom, emotional resilience, being able to be grounded and present. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds so good. So as the writer noted, with new coping tools, he was able to use thought, to use the thought rather than have his thoughts use him. By observing thoughts, he gained a level of awareness that helped him practice emotional sobriety and develop both his personal and spiritual growth. Thank you for joining me on this journey of exploration, personal growth and healing. And remember, you have the power to shape your thoughts and emotions. And by doing so, you're taking a significant step towards living an inspired life. That's a wrap for today's episode of Inspired Living. If you found this content valuable, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends and loved ones. Until next time, stay mindful, stay present, and keep embracing the beauty of your journey, my friends. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this discussion was inspiring and uplifting to your journey. Please remember this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to substitute a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Also, make sure you rate this show, share with those you know, and send us a shout out. Please message me with any topics you would like me to address or questions you have on social media at Dr. Sean Horn or on my website. Thank you again and may you find joy in the journey and be richly blessed.